I believe we'll have one more study in our summer song series next week. But this week we look at a psalm that has been called a song for the Sabbath. In trying to figure out exactly why it bears that title, I found absolutely no help at all from the historians who have studied the word throughout the years because nobody seems to want to go out on a limb to say, here is why this is called a song for the Sabbath. So just know that even that heading is part of Scripture and, and let it sit with you on this Lord's Day just to consider why God wanted his people to hear this on uh, a day of rest. The song begins with this descriptive of good. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. We use good in a lot of different ways in the English language. Much to my wife's chagrin, it's my most frequent word used to describe my day, right? I get home, how was your day? Good. And after 21 years, I'm even now just learning that she probably wants a little more than that. Uh, But it's such a good word to describe a good day, right? Good. Good can mean morally right. Good versus evil. That great struggle that even movies try to capture and there's all the comic strips are back as the good hero fights the evil villain. Good versus evil can be used in that moral sense. It can be used in the sense of something that's fitting or appropriate. We might tell our kids, hey, it would be good for you to make a card for grandma for her birthday. So it's it's fitting. That would be appropriate. That, that's a good thing to do. We could use the word good to mean favorable or profitable. Back to the question, how was your day at work? Well, it was good. Or probably the most common usage of good would be goodbye or good night. We say that because it was designed to be almost a, a blessing or benediction. May it be good for you, may it be favorable, uninterrupted sleep, Uh, good night. Well, we want to explore how the psalmist uses this idea of good in our worship. Our theme is really the first line in bold in your notes. It is good to worship the Lord. And perhaps that simple summary is why it bears the name, a song for the Sabbath. It's good that God's people worship. It's good, I think we would say, because at times, if we measured whether or not we should attend Sunday by whether we had a good week or not, many of us wouldn't show up on Sundays. It just seems like, what's the use after all of this mess Why go to church? And the psalmist would simply say that he's probably had weeks like that too, but that it is always good to worship the Lord. I suppose the theme is all of the lines on your notes. We'll just kind of fill in the gaps in between that one kind of overarching sentence that you have there. But let's start by just thinking on what it means when the psalmist says, 
in these opening verses, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. It is good to worship the Lord. How does the psalmist describe this worship? This isn't necessarily a discourse on how worship should unfold in a church service. Many of you have attended here for years, and most all of us have attended churches somewhere else. We've seen other styles of worship, other applications of of how to gather and worship. You've been a part of uh, our liturgy, our order of service, the things we think should be a part of corporate worship. Other churches may structure it differently. This isn't necessarily a manual on how to apply worship to the gathered congregation, but there are some instructions here that help us understand more than just a general praise to the Lord. So how does the psalmist describe worship just in these three short verses? He says it is good, and then he gives us three infinitive phrases here, three phrases that explain what is good. It is good to give thanks. It is good to sing praise or literally to make music, and it is good to declare. What does this teach us about worship? Number one, I think we see that ours should be grateful worship. Worship that is characterized by thanksgiving and praise. Oftentimes in our prayer, we are driven by petition. We want to bring our requests to the Lord, and well, we should. For our own well-being and because God, our Heavenly Father, has invited us to do that. But even as Jesus taught us to pray, including how to make our petition, it began by understanding who is this God that we're coming to. He is our Heavenly Father. How can this being in heaven be related to us in a fatherly relationship if we are sinners, dead in our trespasses and sins, So from the very start, we're we're invited to remember that God has done something to draw us into his family. Hallowed be your name, we're taught to pray. So that we're not treading casually into uh, the snack room at the workplace and hitting a vending machine for something we feel like we need. No, we're approaching a holy God in reverence and awe, but with privilege and by invitation. Our worship is grateful worship when we recognize what God has done for us, that we would be a people that could even articulate the words, it is so good to gather with God's people. It is so good to worship the Lord. It is so good to know when our loved ones pass on in faith, that they're with the Lord. Not everyone thinks that way. Not everyone knows that kind of stabilizing truth. Not everyone has Jesus as Lord and Savior and God. Ours should be grateful worship. It is good 
for us to give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 100 reminds us this is the starting place. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Push those open and keep driving towards that throne that we're told to come boldly to. Enter through those gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise, and eventually we'll get there. We'll get to that place of seeking mercy and help in our time of need. But in everything, give thanks. It's not a matter of, oh, it's those seasons where we are especially mindful of what God has done for us. No, this is the season where God is doing something for you. You say, but it looks like chaos. It looks like disorder. It looks like hurt. It looks like suffering. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There's no real questions there. And so perhaps sometime on this Lord's Day, you would find a few quiet moments for private thanksgiving and praise. Though I think the text is speaking of what we've done here already together, what you may do in the lobby or in your row after the service, acknowledging God was good to you this week and providing this or sparing you from that. Let's be a people that understand and and truly affirm that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Ours should be grateful worship. Secondly, let me suggest that ours is the privilege of musical worship. Musical worship. The text says it is good to sing praises or to make music to your name, O Most High. Now, church history is full of those who have objected to the use of instruments in the church. In my generation, there was a bit of a, I don't know if I'd call it a reaction to even the church organ, right? Church organs have fallen on hard times. If you want an organ, I suppose you'd probably find one real cheap or free online. Uh, Organs just aren't in high demand. There's kind of been a reaction against what had been the staple instrument of the church, and yet when the organs were kind of being invented and making their way into the church, one of our favorite reformers is on record as saying, I'm not opposed to the organ, the musical instruments in the church, as long as they're not seen or heard. You'd be surprised to know what Luther or Calvin or Spurgeon said about instruments in the life of the church, uh, the gathered worship. Um, While I would esteem much of what they write, I, I just cannot find myself in agreement with their take on instrumental uh, participation in the worship. Uh, strangely enough, most of these ones that objected to the instruments loved the psalms. And yet the Psalms are rich in calling us to use our voices and the instruments. As a matter of fact, here in our text, it is good to give thanks, to sing praise, and to declare the character of God to the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. So with so many in church history, I would share a a deep passion for the voice of the congregation in worship. And you sing so well. Um, Our plan is to drop a few mics from the ceiling and do some recording of your singing uh, and let you be able to listen to that throughout the week uh, because it it is powerful. It's just our little stream that will be added to the thunderous roar of the sound of mighty waters in heaven when all of the redeemed 
say so. So we love congregational singing. But the text is clear here. That, that is a gift of God. Music is God's idea. It is God's gift. And, and, and it reveals so much of his beauty and his design uh, that musical worship is good, the psalm is telling us. So give thanks, sing praise, declare the Lord's character, and do it with your voices and with the instruments that you have. So thank you to the musicians that play. And let me say we should be talking with some of you because I know there are more instruments out there. Uh, You might not have a lute or a harp or a lyre, uh, but you may have something that could be a, a rich blessing in the sound of our congregational worship. Number three, it should be public worship. Public worship. To declare your steadfast love is good. Not just to know it, not just to affirm it or believe it deep down inside, but to declare it. There's nothing private about this. This is, this is the language of making an announcement, tracking someone down to be sure they're aware of it. It would be much like the New Testament word for preaching, which really isn't a word sourced in a spiritual effort, It's just a word to announce, to herald an old word. You know, the old roll out the scroll and hear ye, hear ye. It was just the announcing of something. The announcing of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this word declaration is a key word that helps us understand worship. It's not just a private spiritual discipline. There's a place for private worship, for private praise and thanksgiving. Certainly private prayer. We're told, even go into your closet. Don't let anybody know what you're doing. But if the sum of your worship is private, then your worship is unhealthy and insufficient because we are commissioned by God to tell of his greatness, to make his name great. And we scatter throughout all the world so that his name is known in all the earth. And it's a key word in our text because it begins the psalm. It is good to give thanks, to sing praise, to declare. And it closes the psalm. Which is is always an indication that that that's a significant part of what the psalmist is talking about. It clues us in that there's something about the Sabbath for the Old Testament people of God, the Lord's day, we might call it, that should have in it this declaration because this song for the Sabbath starts with declaring something about the Lord and look at the end of the psalm. It ends with a declaration. God is prospering his people. They're flourishing so that they will bear fruit in old age to declare that the Lord is upright He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. I'm making that known. Those might not be your exact words after the service, but it might be a script you can borrow from. When someone says they're overwhelmed, and they don't know what they're going to do, and everything's chaos, and you you can use your script and declare that the Lord is a rock. There's stability there. There's 
there's a place to drop an anchor. And even if your boat on the top is tossed by the waves, the, the anchor holds. Read Hebrews and see Christ as our anchor. You might tell someone, the Lord is our rock. Well, I don't know what God's doing. It just seems like everything's falling apart. Just remember, remember, God never makes mistakes. He's always right. You might not say there is no unrighteousness in him or the Lord is upright, but you remind somebody that God is always good. This is not a mistake. He works all things for good. This is what our God does. A declaration at the beginning of the psalm, a declaration at the end of the psalm. There's something about the gathering of God's people that must include the declaration of who God is. And I don't think that rests solely on the sermon. I think this is the language of God's people who have been reminded God is always enough for us. And so it's grateful worship, musical worship, public worship. It is good to praise the Lord. So how much did you do that this past week? Psalm 147.1, praise the Lord for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. You know, sometimes you want to drive home from work and just have nonsense on. You listen to sports radio, you have some fun music. Other times you might just want to be, you know, I just need a song, 10,000 reasons. I, I, just want to, I just want to thank the Lord. It's, it, that's what my first response was. Uh, it is fitting for us to praise the Lord. And it doesn't have to be, oh, I can't wait to sing that song on Sunday. Uh, worship music doesn't have to dominate your listening all week long. But it would be fitting if at times we're just overwhelmed with thanksgiving. And remember, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. And your music may not be as professional or as excellent as someone you hear singing around you. Well, that's the beauty of your commute throughout the day. Whether you're heading to Walmart or heading home from work, you can sing as loud as you want in your car and you'll sound good. Uh, so do that. It's fitting. It's right. It's good that we give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 33, 1, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise fits the upright. So if you're the righteous ones, if you're upright, by God's grace, praise is fitting for you. It looks good on you. If somebody commends you for your dress, your shirt, your new haircut today, well, be reminded, that should serve as an example of how our praise should look to others. It's fitting. God has been good to you. I should expect you to be speaking of God's goodness. And so you should expect that of me. Well, let's move on. Before we get to the more obvious reason for praise, which is point number three there on your notes, we have to see that it is good to praise the Lord, who is the God of every perfection. The God of every perfection. The title in the text that comes to us is this. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. That's his personal covenant name, Yahweh. To sing praises to your name, O Most High. 
Who is this God that we're praising? Oh, we're going to see we should praise him because of his great works. But those works aren't an accident. They flow from someone. And that someone is this God of every perfection. He is God most high. That title alone does not originate with God. Oh, I know God was first and foremost, and he's always been the most high God, but this actual title was a Canaanite title that was used of their God, specifically Baal. The Israelites basically stole this name and said, listen, guys, it doesn't work for you. Uh, You're carving your God out of stone. Our God made the stone. So we're going to take that title and apply it rightly to the God of heaven and earth. We studied that a few weeks ago. Lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's what Israel was saying when they heard this title most high and they're thinking, no, Baal is most low, but our God, Yahweh, is most high. And so Israel snatched this title and in Psalm 83, the psalmist says it this way in a prayer to the Lord, let your enemies be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So here's God's people in the land of Canaan and they're saying, Lord, defeat your enemies and let them know that you alone, not Baal, not any other of their gods, but you alone are the most high. That's where the title belongs. You're the God who made everything. You're the God of creation. You're the God who sustains all things. You're the God of every perfection. And the psalmist unfolds that in our musical worship. Sing praises to your name. What does God's name reveal? We began with a call to worship. Those who know your name put their trust in you. If we really believed everything that God revealed in his many names similes, metaphors that he gives us, we would be strongly motivated to trust him with everything. If he's all of that, why wouldn't I trust him? He's the God of every perfection. What are we to declare about the Lord? We're to declare his steadfast love in the morning, his faithfulness by night. He is the maker and initiator of covenants and he is the faithful keeper of them. Come what may, Bright daylight and beautiful picnic prosperity or thunderous storms and flooded basements. He's God and he's faithful through all of it. He's the God of steadfast love, faithfulness. Verse 5, he's the God whose thoughts are very deep. The prophet tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. They are higher and deeper. His perfection is unattainable. It is beyond our comprehension, but it is not beyond our knowing. God has revealed himself and all of his perfection to us. We can know him as the God who is perfect. And so the psalm ends that he is upright. There is no unrighteousness in him. Everything about him is the very definition of good or perfect. While we may not ever 
in all eternity comprehend everything God is, we will certainly know something of what God is. He is knowable. And we come to his word, and on this song for the Sabbath, we're supposed to see that it is good to worship the Lord, who is the God of every perfection. And I think it's important to nail down his nature before we begin to talk about his works, lest we only ever think God is good because he's done good things for us. And those good things are significantly good things like the salvation of our souls. But God is not worthy of praise only because he has saved you. He is worthy of praise because of who he is. He is the God of every perfection. And while theologically this might seem like a no-brainer to us, check that box, I believe that, when push comes to shove, we start having our doubts of whether he's perfectly good or perfectly just, or perfectly fair? Is his timing really perfect? Because I would have ordained these steps a little differently sometimes. Faith demands that we recognize and affirm he is the God of every perfection. This is why you should read your Bible this week. Because you need to be reminded of God's perfect nature You need to be challenged to see more of the glory of his person. Or maybe you need to be challenged to want to see more of the glory of God's person, as Moses did in Exodus. You need to be bolstered by the faithfulness of God that you see in his word, the goodness of God, the strength of his character. You just need fresh content for praise. You believe it's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to his name, to declare his nature. But if I asked you to do that, you might hum and haw a little bit because you haven't recently just indulged your mind in the glory of God. So it is good to worship the Lord who is the God of every perfection and, now number three, whose nature is expressed in his works. Beginning in verse 5, How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. That's kind of the, the summary of understanding that because of who God is, we see how he does things. His nature is expressed in his works. God does what he does because of who he is. You see, that can be different for me. I could be kind to you, but it might be because I want something from you. It might be because I want to look good in somebody else's eyes. And so I might do something good and not be good. That's not how it works with God. God does good things because he is good. It flows from his character. So the psalmist has made it clear it is good to give praise to God. He's worth it. He's God most high, whose thoughts are above ours. He's faithful. He's steadfast. He covenants in love. He's perfect everything. And because of that, we say, how great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The Lord is upright. There is not unrighteousness in him. He only does the right things because he is 
the definition of what is right. The psalmist really gives us two major categories for God's works. He starts with how God deals with evildoers, the wicked, the unbelievers. And in summary, God judges the wicked. So he begins by saying, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. And the text kind of comes across as pretty blunt. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this. This word for stupid or the fool isn't, isn't just the crass kind of insult that the way we would use these words. This is the truest definition of these words. The ultimate ignorance or foolishness of being confronted with truth. Romans 1 would say, God has revealed himself all around us. To be confronted with that and instead choose to reject that, bury one's head in the sand and say, it must not be so. That's what the text is addressing. It's not telling us we should go around and call every unbeliever a stupid fool. Because our use of those words is probably skewed in our even understanding or definitions. And it would easily lead us down a, a, a path of, a, of an imprecation that we're not good at. A, a hate that we're not good at. God can curse and judge and hate in perfect righteousness. Remember, his nature is all perfection. So when God judges and when God says something is stupid or foolish, it's in a perfect way that we aren't as good at. And so I just offer that word of caution. That those words probably aren't rich in our vocabulary in our evangelism and outreach. Uh, probably not our first way of approaching the unbeliever. Though, put it with Romans 1, and we just come to understand that a lot of the foolishness we're hearing in our world today, a lot of the, the gender ignorance, or to borrow heavily from the text, stupidity, in the truest sense, not in an insulting way, not being lacking compassion for those apart from Christ, but in the truest sense, that makes no sense. Romans 1 is being manifested right before our eyes. And that's what the psalmist is saying. Those who turn away from God most high have doomed themselves. They've, they've cut off the only hope of escaping the bondage of sin. They've cut off the only hope of, of seeing the truth. They've embraced the blindness that the devil has brought to them. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. When you read Peter's letters, you realize that people were saying, where's, where's the promise of his coming? You really think God's going to come back and deal with all of us sinners? And they were scoffing at the thought that God was going to return and deal with humanity. And Peter says they did this to Noah when he built the ark. They scoffed at the idea that there would be any accountability. And yet the floodwaters covered the earth. And while God promised not to do that again, he has certainly promised 
to let his son come back again, not as the humble servant offering salvation, but as the conquering king coming in judgment of his enemies to the great cheers and celebrations of his people. Read 2 Thessalonians 1. God judges the wicked. Their condition is one of arrogance, which could actually paradoxically be called ignorance, and their downfall is sure. But notice in verse 7 that a favorite word of God's people is used of the wicked. They flourish. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evil doers flourish. Do you see that? Does it really look like anybody cares to stand in the way of Russia's overtaking of Ukraine? In my mind, I look at it and I think, we, we've been talking about this for months, and yet nothing's changed. They just keep taking territory. Like, what's the repercussion? Where's the justice? We want to we see something happen. Kick them out. And it's that way in, in, all the way down to the sphere of your relationship with your spouse. Well, that wasn't fair. I didn't like that they did it that way. It sure seems like we could come up with plenty of cases where it feels like, looks like, and it is like evildoers flourish. Just keep reading the text, though. Yes, the wicked sprout like grass, green and lush, evildoers flourish, but they are doomed to destruction forever. The psalmist says we have to compare now to then. Now, life is a vapor, momentary, and it looks like they flourish. But the truth is, forever they're doomed. The psalmist goes on. You O Lord, are on high forever. Behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. They flourish, but their moment of prosperity is fleeting. Moses had to evaluate while he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Acts 7, I believe it is, tells us he was trained in in every area of wisdom of Egypt. I would suggest Moses was an extremely gifted orator. He was skilled in logic. He was a commanding presence while in Egypt. And yet, he had to choose to either suffer affliction with the people of God or to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He had to compare, is it worth flourishing now and lose everything? Or do I recognize that evildoers may flourish for a time, but their doom is certain? The psalmist is clear. God judges his enemies. Don't be confused by their temporary success, by their momentary kind of flash-in-the-pan prosperity or pseudo-happiness. The Bible's honest. There, There is pleasure in living for self, but it's only for a season. Remember the prodigal? He would say there's pleasure in sin for a season. And then comes the reaping. 
that God promises always comes after the sowing. Read through the Psalms and you'll see this, this question often plagues the righteous. Why do the wicked prosper? And God just calls us to faith in his bigger plan, part of which is revealed to us. Don't focus on the momentary. Focus on the eternal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Stop, stop worrying about how you compare to the prosperous wicked here on earth. God judges the wicked, but number two, he rewards the righteous. You have exalted my horn, the psalmist says in verse 10, like that of a wild ox. You say, I, I, I don't know what it means to be like a wild ox. I'm no farmer. Uh, I just remember passing through Texas all those years driving down to camp in Louisiana and seeing those giant longhorn steer. I, I don't know if that counts as an ox or not. I don't know what an ox is, all right? <laughs> I just know some of those ox-like creatures have some pretty massive horns. And the horn, we see that often in the Psalms. The Lord strengthens the horn of his people. And you're like, I don't know what that means. Like, why does a trumpet matter? No, it's the, it's the big strong ox. Or you, you might think of, you know, a massive moose out in Colorado somewhere with that huge antler display. That word horn is, is a symbol of strength. You, you know, I, I can remember seeing a rodeo. This was way back when I first moved to Kansas City. And... Um, in the evenings, late on Sunday night after the news, George Michael's sports machine would be on, and they'd show all the highlights of the sports of the week, and they showed a rodeo where one of the riders had been killed by one of the bulls. It threw him off, and he stood to his feet just as that ox or steer took that horn and caught him right under the ribcage and threw him up in the air, and he was dead when he hit the ground. That, that serves to remind us, like, oh, wait a minute. That, that's not just something you, you grab onto and wrestle, and that's a fun little rodeo event. There, there is power in that animal. And that horn as a weapon, as a self-defense, is a powerful instrument. That's, that's the kind of culture and understanding that the psalmist had when he says, the Lord has exalted my horn. He's given me strength that is beyond me. In the New Testament, Paul would say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I do the things that I do, all the suffering and shipwrecks and being stoned and all that, not because I'm superhuman, but just because God has said, there will be grace in measure with the ministry I call you to. So if he's called you to the busy life of a full household, moms and dads, come to this text and know that God will exalt your horn. He'll give you the strength to do that. If your job right now is demanding, but you're sure God gave it to you and it provides for your family, then just know there will be strength to do it. You'll figure out the balance, the priorities. You can do this. God will bless his people. He will give them strength. The wicked he will judge. Their flourishing is momentary. The flourishing of God's people is eternal. The psalmist says in verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree. They grow like a cedar in Lebanon. The legendary stability and strength and tenure of those cedar trees. 
They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of the Lord. Some of you love plants, and plants flourish in your house or in your courts. You can keep things going. I, I, I don't do that well. By kindness of some of the ladies in the church, I, I have two plants in my office that they promised me were, were almost unkillable. And it's proven to be true. Oh, they've wilted and yellowed a time or two, and then I remembered, you know, water every six months might be a help to them. But they were right. These plants are hardy, and, and that's what I need because I, I don't nurture plants. But here the Bible says the wicked are judged, doomed to destruction, scattered by the Lord. But the righteous, they are planted in his house and in his courts as if he's going to go around and trim their leaves and and stuff a little nutrient and stick in the soil and make sure they're watered. He's going to nurture and provide for the righteous. They're brought into his house and they're going to flourish there. This echoes Psalm 1. The wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away, but the righteous, they're like this planted tree that never seems to even wither or dry up. Always fruitful. And so our psalm, even in their old age, full of sap and green. You hit 50 and you want to think that's going to always be true. But even the way we think of aging, we think it's nice to still be independent and, and vibrant and able to take care of yourself. Well, that's, that whole idea is what God borrows on here. And he says, I will provide for you in a flourishing that transcends even life on this earth. Because your flourishing as the righteous goes beyond, I don't need a cane when I'm 85. Well, that may be a kindness of God to you. But his ultimate promise is you will live forever because you have the righteousness of Christ. This psalm does what the wisdom literature often does. It shows us the two stark categories into which all humanity is divided the wicked, and the righteous. Everyone here today is in one of those two categories. The wicked who are doomed to destruction, or you are the righteous, promised by God to flourish forever in his courts. The question is, in which category are you? And if you believe yourself to be in the category of the righteous, you'd better have a really good explanation for why you think that you who have sinned so much should be called righteous. You're either the wicked who will be judged or the righteous who will be rewarded and blessed forever. And if you're saying, I'm among the righteous, I want to know why do you think that? What makes you think you should be called righteous? You know you better than I do. Well, the really good explanation you need is the really good news. It's the gospel that sinners can receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. When they repent of sin, which means this is bad, this has, this has been an offense against God, this has cost me eternity. But when you recognize that and say, I need something I don't have, 
You turn away from sin and you recognize Jesus has righteousness. He has kept God's law. I need that kind of righteousness. Now you're trusting in Jesus. Those are all of the the words of the Bible, repentance and faith. But it simply means I realize sin has ruined me and I realize Christ can rescue me. He can make me righteous. Only because God has said, your sin will count as his and his righteousness will count as yours. And so as Christ dies on the cross, his body broken and his blood shed, it is bearing the sin of all who would believe. And when you stand before God, you can stand in a righteousness that is not yours. It is another's. It is the righteousness of Christ. And because of that confidence that we can have, that we are numbered among the righteous and I'm not the wicked doomed to destruction, Psalm 92 makes one final point. It is good to praise the Lord who is the God of every perfection and whose nature is expressed in his works so that we will be glad. So that we will be glad. Verse 4. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Verses 12 and 13, the righteous flourish. Picture a glad flower, not wilted and closed, but vibrant and open, blossomed. The righteous flourish. They know God's presence and they're satisfied in his purpose for them, in his planting. Just two psalms back, the writer longed for this very joy. Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Why? So that we might be rejoice and be glad all our days. The general trajectory of daily living is, here we go again. The rut and the routine and the psalmist says, I long for something more than that. Satisfy us in the morning so that I might be glad and rejoice all my days. And now just two psalms later, the Lord has answered that prayer and the psalmist says, it is good to give thanks to the Lord. When I see who he is and when I see what he's done, I'm glad, I'm satisfied, I'm good. When you explore the beauty and the perfection of God, when you see his wondrous works unfolding and you note them and you declare them, when you taste his goodness in salvation, that that first good work demonstrated to you by your heavenly father, how can you not be glad and sing for joy? At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. Isaiah 53, coupled with Acts chapter 2, make it clear to us that the hands of God were intimately involved in the crushing of his son. His work of sacrificing his son for our salvation should lead us to a life of gladness. I sing for joy. Psalm 92, a song for the Sabbath, for 
a lot of reasons I don't know. But for one reason I do know would be because when we gather and recount the work of the Lord specifically, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, how can we not be glad? How can we not find another touch of satisfaction so that all of our days can be characterized by joy? The hymn writer said it this way, My life flows on in endless song above earth's lamentation. I hear the sweet though far off hymn that hails a new creation. Through all the tumult and the strife, I hear that music ringing. It finds an echo in my soul. You know the question? How can I keep from singing? No storm can shake my inmost calm while to that refuge clinging. Since Christ is Lord of heaven and earth, how can I keep from singing? It is good to give thanks to the Lord. It is good to sing praises to his name. It is good to declare his steadfast love and faithfulness. It's good for us to worship. This is a song of the Lord's day. We've sung it already. We'll sing it again before we go. It is good to worship the Lord. Heavenly Father, make us confident in your character. Make us ready with our praise and make us glad in our worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.